Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. You guys can have a seat. How are you guys doing? You guys there? I know you're a million feet from me, but okay. I'll just, I'll just let you have it. Hey, it's a beautiful day this morning. Thanks for coming out uh, to join us for worship. You don't know how much this means uh, to me and to our staff team and leaders just to see our entire uh, church come together uh, for worship. Um, it is not the same preaching and leading music and ministering through a camera lens. And so we're just uh, so glad to be here. It's a beautiful day. So thank the Lord for no humidity uh, and just a gorgeous day outside. And hey, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a, uh, of a um, kids for you. If you hang with me, kids, listen, kids, if you hang with me for like 20 minutes, all right, just hang with me. I'll buy you ice cream. How's that sound? I promise, totally promise. I will pull an ice cream truck up here and I'll buy you ice cream if you hang with me for 20 minutes. And yes, you will see the ice cream truck pull up at some point when we're done and we'll have uh, a good time together. Hey, but this morning we're going to continue in our series uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together for a, a very long time. I believe we're in part 22 and we're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 6, and we'll read that together here in just a few minutes. But this morning, I kind of have a slight change of plans. So over the last four weeks, if you've been tuning into our live stream and you've been following the sermon series that we've been in, we've been reading together from Luke chapter 6. And we've been studying what is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount, famous sermon by Jesus. And Luke organizes his version of the Sermon on the Mount a little differently. He gives us five specific teachings from Jesus in this sermon. And what Jesus is doing in these five different teachings is he's giving us five different fruits that grow on the Christian. Meaning, if you say you follow Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, if you say that Jesus has changed your life, then there will be evidence, could be a little bit of evidence, could be a lot of evidence, but there will be some fruit that displays that sort of transformation that Jesus does in our life. And so after the, uh, over the last four weeks, we've talked about the first four of these five teachings, the first four of these fruits. So real quick, let me recap these for you. Uh, week one, we said that the, the Christian, those who follow Jesus, they play the long game, not the short game, meaning that we look to the kingdom of God to be the place where all the desires of our heart will be fulfilled. We don't look to the things of this world so we don't have to waste our time trying to look to the world to fulfill the desires of our heart. We know we'll get that in God's kingdom. And so we're free to, to serve and to love others and to do what God has called us to do because of that. Fruit number two was that followers of Jesus are merciful. They love their enemies. They show mercy to those who wrong them. They show mercy to those who need something because we are recipients of God's mercy. Week number three, we said the, the follower of Jesus is self-aware. 
they realize they have been saved from their sin by the mercy of God. And so therefore, the Christian ought to be at least the least judgmental person that this world has ever seen because we have received God's mercy. And then week number four, last week, we talked about how a follower of Jesus treasures Jesus in his heart, her heart, above anything else in this world. Now, last week, as we were talking about that last fruit, the fourth one, what it means to treasure Jesus, what I told you is I said that the way that we grow in treasuring Jesus is by investing more time with Jesus. And I told you that today, as we talk about the fifth fruit here from Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be talking about how we invest more time with Jesus. And this is where the change of plans comes into place. Because as I was studying today's scripture over the last week, uh, I, I felt the Spirit leading me to teach this from a different perspective. Uh, this week I was, um, I saw a clip from Inside the NBA on TNT. I don't know if you ever watch it, NBA commentary. It's got Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith and a few others. And, I, and it was Wednesday, I believe, of this week that uh, several NBA teams, actually I think all of them, decided not to take the court during the playoffs as a form of protest due to the shooting of James Blake in Wisconsin. And as I watched players talk about why they made this decision not to play, the sense that I got was that they were so upset, they were so traumatized by yet another shooting that that basketball to them seemed trivial. It didn't seem important at the time, almost maybe inappropriate at the time, they felt like they needed to use their influence for something else, and so they didn't play. And so I was, uh, saw this clip from inside the NBA, and, um, and then I watched Kenny Smith, one of the hosts, do the same thing. You could tell that he just couldn't continue with the show. He couldn't continue talking about basketball, and so he walks off the set because it felt out of place to him in the midst of all of this suffering amongst his black brothers and sisters. So as I watched that, I was just thinking about it, and I was immediately reminded of a scripture in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, the book of Isaiah, it's in your Old Testament. And the first part of Isaiah is pretty tough. It's God rebuking his people. God warning them that if they don't repent, judgment is going to come upon them. And I was reminded of something that God said to his people in Isaiah chapter 1. And I want to read this to you. So I'm going to read Isaiah 1, 11 through 15. But let me just warn you before I read this. This is tough. This is a little harsh. All right, so hang with me in it. Let's just read it. This is what God says to his people in Israel. He says this, verse 11. What makes you think... I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Look at this. When you come to worship me, 
Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days of fasting, they are sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, listen to this, uh, I will not listen. That's tough. Let me contextualize this for us a bit. Let's just say God was saying that to his church. Let's just say God was saying that to Grace Hill. Not saying he is saying it to Grace Hill. Let's just say he was. He would say something like this. I, I'm not a big fan of your worship songs right now. It bothers me when you lift your hands and sing. I, I can't stand all the things you do to serve around the church. I'm not listening to your prayers. I'm not impressed when you do your quiet time. I do not accept all of your religious, pious activity. Why? What, why is God saying this? What's going on? This doesn't sound like God. What, what's going on? Look what he says. Isaiah 1, verse 16, next verse. What does he want Israel to do? He says this, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Look at this, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. See, here's what God is saying. If your faith in me caused you to do all of this pious religious stuff, but you don't care about the things that I care about, and your heart is not moved by the things that move my heart, and you don't do the things that I tell you to do as my people, then I'm not interested in all the pious religious stuff. It doesn't mean anything to me. And I was reminded of this passage last week because you had basketball players saying if, that, if we as a country don't address the oppression on our streets, then basketball doesn't matter. Well, I think God is saying the same thing to us as the church. If we don't care about the oppression and suffering of our neighbors, then all the stuff we do here, it, it doesn't matter. And this is the fifth and final fruit that Jesus teaches us about in Luke chapter 6. And this actually might be the ultimate fruit that grows on the Christian. They do what Jesus tells them to do. They live out their faith. Their worship isn't empty. Look at this. Their piety doesn't mask their apathy. I mean, could you imagine the impact and the influence the church would have if we fought for justice and we fought for the oppressed with the same fervor that we put into all of the religious practices that we do? This is what Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 6. So I want us to read that together. This is the final part of that chapter, the last fruit. 
that Jesus gives us. So let me read this. This is Luke 6, verses 46 to 49. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, the one who hears my teaching but does not put it into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was, was great. If you come to me, you listen to what I have to say and you actually put it into practice, well, that's like putting your house on the rock. But if you come to me, you hear what I have to say and you don't do what I say, That's like building your house on sand. Here in Luke, Jesus begins this teaching by saying, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? This is the Greek word kurios. It's the word used to refer to the Messiah by the Jews in Greek. It's basically a verbal confession. If you call Jesus Lord in that day, you were confessing with your mouth that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. So Jesus saying, why do you confess this with your mouth that I'm God, yet you don't do what I tell you to do? So if we were to go over to the book of Matthew, okay, Matthew chapter seven, this is Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew gives us this teaching too, but he gives us a little more. Because remember, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount's longer. There's more substance to it. And I want you to see how Matthew gives us this teaching. So I'm going to read Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Look what Jesus says. This is Sermon on the Mount. Same teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, right? Not everyone who confesses with their mouth that I am God will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus says, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then starting in the next verse, verse 24, Jesus gives the same analogy as we read in Luke about the house being built on the rock or the house being built on the sand. And so same thing as Isaiah There are going to be people who who come to Jesus and and tell them about all these incredibly pious and religious things they have done. They're going to be theologically articulate people. And yet, Jesus is going to say, you are not a part of me because you don't care about the things that I care about. You don't love people the way that I love people. You don't do the things that I've called upon you to do even though they might appear to be the most impressive Christian you've ever seen. Jesus is saying, your house is built on sand. So listen to this. I need you to get this. 
the way that we know that our house is built on rock with a firm foundation, according to Jesus, is when we see our faith not just express itself through piety, but also through life-altering love and compassion for others, especially the marginalized and oppressed. Let me say that again. The way that we know that our house is built on the rock is when we see our faith not just express itself through piety, but also through life-altering, life-laying-down, picking up your cross, and following Jesus' type of love and compassion for others, especially the marginalized and oppressed. Like, if we're going to talk about fruit that grows on the Christian, if we're going to talk about how you spot a Christian, the kind of impact God's church should have in this world, the ultimate fruit is that they have a heart that moves swiftly and compassionately to help the marginalized and oppressed. Like the Christian's knee-jerk reaction to the cries for help from people is not skepticism, ever. It's always compassion and mercy. The Christian errs on the side of compassion, never errs on the side of skepticism. Like if the Christian's going to make an error in this, if they're going to do something too much, they're going to show too much compassion, not too much skepticism. And we're in a day and an age right now where we need to be really clear about this because the church has been so hijacked by politics and we have too many people running around claiming the name of Jesus and saying they're Christian, but they don't have an ounce of empathy or compassion toward the marginalized and oppressed. Their instincts have been less trained by their savior and more trained by cable news. And Jesus was crystal clear in his teaching about how his followers would relate to those who are hurting and suffering in this world. I'll just let him teach us for a moment what he says in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And this is every bit as radical as it sounds. This is Jesus teaching all of us. Hear his word right now. He says this, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And the king will say to those on the right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. And I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you brought me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then all these righteous ones, the sheep on the right, will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? and feed you or thirsty and give you drink. 
Or when did we see you as a stranger and invite you into our home or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick and care for you? When did we ever see you in prison and visit you? And I'll say to them, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, when you did it for the marginalized and oppressed, when you laid down your life to love them, you were doing it for me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then all the ones on the left will be like, God, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or sick? When did, we, when did we ever see you? When did we have an opportunity to do this, Jesus, for you? Lord, Lord, didn't you see us prophesy in your name and do mighty works in your name and preach boldly? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, the marginalized and oppressed, when you refused to lay down your life for them when you prioritized your comfort and plans in life over theirs. You were refusing to help me. Is our piety, all of our religious worship, is our piety a mask for our apathy towards the marginalized and oppressed? Because the Bible is clear in both the Old and New Testament, that God is not interested in our religion unless we love people the way he loves people and unless we do what he asks us to do as his people. You know, after God's rebuke to his people in Isaiah, he then says this to them starting in the next verse. So verse 18 in Isaiah 1. This is the next thing he says. After that harsh rebuke, he says this, Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. God follows his rebuke of his people with a promise of mercy. See, because here's the deal, guys. God is not calling us to do anything that he himself did not do for us first. Like, could you imagine, just imagine this for a second with me, if God's knee-jerk reaction to us was skepticism and not compassion. Like, think about that. Like, when you go to God to ask for help, you need something. God, I need you to come through for me right now. Or you go to God for forgiveness. God, I messed up here. I need your forgiveness, right? If his knee-jerk reaction was skepticism, I mean, he was like, oh, you're back. You know, every time you come and pray to me, you just like, it's almost like you need something. Huh, that's a pattern. Oh, oh, you need forgiveness for that again? How many times has that been? 10, 20, 30? How many times are we going to go around this merry-go-round? Like if that was God's reaction to us, and if anyone has the right or ability to be skeptical of us, it is God. God knows our hearts. 
He knows our mixed motives. He knows our selfishness. He knows how duplicitous we can be. And yet, God's knee-jerk reaction to you is radical, scandalous, undeserved mercy that is new every single morning. He does not tire of your pleas for mercy and help and forgiveness. And this is the kind of weird conduct, weird behavior, weird love that God calls his church to live out in the world to our neighbors, to be people who move towards the suffering and oppressed with radical, scandalous, undeserved mercy that is new every morning. All we're doing is loving people in the exact way that God has loved us in and through Christ. That's God's call upon the Christian. Hey, how I have loved you vertically. You go look horizontally to your neighbors. Love them the same way. With the same scandalous grace. Undeserved. And so as much as I'd love to take 30 more minutes and talk about all kinds of specific ways that we can do this, I know I don't have that time, but I think all of us this morning can respond to this word in in two ways. First, we can examine ourselves and just ask, man, is my house built on rock right now? Do I express my faith simply through piety? Or is it expressed through life-altering love and compassion towards others as well? Am I more skeptical of the cries of the oppressed? Or am I more compassionate? Do I err on the side of skepticism? Do I assume that those who are crying out that they are oppressed are actually oppressed? Or do I err on the side of compassion? And just say, hey, if I'm going to be wrong on this one, I'd rather be wrong with my compassion. We can all examine ourselves on that. But the second thing we can do is we can all remember the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus not only said that he loved us with his mouth, but he gave his life so that we could receive the mercy and grace of God. Which is why this morning when you walked in, uh, hopefully you picked up a communion cup. Uh, If you didn't, I think there's some over on the table. You can run over there and grab one if you want. But when the church gathers together to take communion together, what we're doing is remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. We're remembering the radical, scandalous, undeserved way that Jesus loved us by giving his life on the cross. How he didn't move towards us with skepticism, he moved towards us with compassion. Because when we remember how Christ loved us, not only are we reminded of God's mercy upon us, but we're also reminded of the radical way that God has called us to love others. And so if you have your communion cup, I just encourage you to grab it. Due to COVID, we have these weird little instant ones. They'll do. But if you grab your communion, There's a little wafer on top in the packaging, and then you can get the juice ready. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us in just a few moments, and then the band's just going to play a little bit and give us a few moments of silence for us just to reflect and pray 
over our communion. But here's what I want you to do after I pray. I want you to take that wafer. And I want you to reflect on the broken body of Christ. That Christ's body was broken under God's wrath, not because of his sin, but because of our sin. But that because his body is broken, God is no longer angry at you. He's not skeptical of you. You are his child now. That is who you are. And so that's how God relates with you because the body of Jesus was broken on our behalf. And then I want you to take the juice. I want you to remember the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and how it cleansed us from all of our sin and made us righteous in his sight. And because of the blood of Jesus, you are forever his. And that's never going to change. That is radical, scandalous love and mercy. And that is how Christ has loved us. And I want to pray right now that as we remember the cross of Christ, not only would we be encouraged in God's love for us, but we would be also challenged to go love our neighbor and to love those in our world that are marginalized and oppressed with the same kind of radical, scandalous, undeserved love and mercy. Let me pray for us. God, in just a few moments as we take these communion elements. God, I don't know if there's anyone here who hasn't placed their faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, but I pray that this would be a moment where what you did on the cross would become real to them. For all of us, Lord, no matter where we're at, God, would you remind us of how Jesus' body was broken on the cross for us when we did not deserve it? Would you remind us of how his blood was shed on the cross to cleanse us from our sin and we did not deserve it? It's all of your grace. And as we remember the cross, God, would you fill us up with such gratitude of your grace that it would overflow to love to our neighbor and it would overflow to compassion to the marginalized and the oppressed and those who are crying for help in our world. Oh God, would you refine your church to be people who aren't skeptical of the oppressed, but who people who show radical compassion. We ask these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.